Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, CEO of Black Hall Studios in Atlanta, and this is the Black Hall Studios podcast. Why does a busy Hollywood studio do a podcast, you might ask? Black Hall is home of great movies like Jumanji The Next Level and fan-favorite series like HBO's Lovecraft Country. But for me, hosting a podcast is an amazing way to meet people and to connect to the community. I learn from each interview and from each person. My roots are actually in America's heartland. My mother's from Nebraska, my father's from Missouri. And though some folks might think I've gone Hollywood, I'm now just an Atlanta boy who loves to meet new and interesting people. And yes, some of them will just happen to be famous Hollywood types. I'm a dad, a businessman, I live on a farm out in social circle and I love the peace and quiet there, but I also love to learn about the philosophy of human nature. So why a podcast? That's why. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I appreciate you. Ryan Gravel came up with the now famous idea of the Atlanta Beltline, an ambitious project that started as his master's thesis at Georgia Tech and now consists of 22 miles of transit greenway that connects all of Atlanta. Yes, it's the most transformative element added to the Atlanta urban landscape in two decades. Known locally and nationally as an urban thinker, we'll figure that one out during the interview, Gravel is a talented designer, author, and builder. Let's listen to Ryan Gravel, founder of the company Six Pitch, as he tells us where we want to live, which also happens to be the title of his book. An interesting man, Gravel's imagination for the urban life knows no bounds. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today on the program, we have Ryan Gravel who is world famous in Atlanta for the Beltline. He's an urban thinker, a designer, an author, a builder, and he's the founder of Six Pitch, which is his company that does all sorts of different things we'll ask him about. Ryan, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan. It's great to be here. So we were talking just before this about uh, the pandemic and your soul searching. Tell me a little bit about that. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know. At first, I didn't really know what we were doing, and I just went through a series of like phases you know I went through my like urban exploration phase and I went through my uh you know home improvement phase and you know whatever um but eventually you know with all the not just the pandemic but the protest for uh social justice racial justice and there's just so much going on right now that you can't help but like not put yourself in context you know a little bit and I'm a you know I'm generally introverted anyway and so I'm, I'm interested and, and this is my work I, I do a lot of work that overlaps with um, spaces for exploration and you know social and racial justice and all kinds of other things and you know it's just interesting to put yourself your life in there and uh, and I got a note from a relative saying something about um, the slaves and slave people that were in our family you know and you can't be white and and from the South and not assume that there's something like that somewhere in your history. But it got me going down this rabbit hole of 
figuring out not only was that true, but if it is like, how do I reconcile myself with that? You know, and, and it, and it, and it, and it makes personal the sort of story of, um, white privilege and, um, white supremacy and all that, that, that is so much at the forefront of our national discussion right now. And if, you know, one thing is to understand that and all that. And another thing is to think about what we do about it, you know? And so I'm really in my work, I'm, I mean, like the Beltline is a great example of like taking something that nobody was thinking about, take, taking the problem and making it into the solution, you know? And so I'm really interested in how we, especially white people, uh, specifically in my case, anyway, white Southerners and, and how do we reconcile that awful thing and then make it into somehow write a new narrative about our future that, um, not just lets it makes, allows us to feel better, which is, you know, part of it maybe, but also, um, helps us solve those, you know, work toward the solutions and, you know, not that we're going to solve it or and certainly not, I'm going to solve it, but like I can help in my own way and participate in that. So you didn't know we were going to go so deep right in the first question. Did you? <laughs> no, I love this. Fantastic. What, what did you find out about your family and, oh yeah, all the awful stuff. All the awful, all the awful stuff. stuff. Yeah. Okay. So let's, we imagine all the awful stuff. So then what do you do? Like, what do you, what do you do if your family has history? It was, I, I'm taking a history of owning slaves. Right. So then what do you feel like your responsibility is today in society? Well, I mean, you know, I, that wasn't me. Right. And Absolutely so, and not. so, you know, and, and all kinds of people have all kinds of other terrible things in their histories too. So I'm not alone. Um, uh, but it does, you know, emphasize our need to not just sort of passively go through life and assume that we got everything that we got because we did such a good job, you know, that we have to acknowledge um, that we got here for reasons and that we can make sure that other people are also, you know, getting where they need to go. And, you know, that's just about love and thoughtfulness and empathy and caring about people, you know. Um, and it translates into, you know, your work, depending on what kind of work you do, who you hire, um, you know, where you work, what you support, what you vote for, all those kinds of things. And so I don't have an answer. I mean, this is very midstream, you know, and, uh, I mean, if you had answers, we'd really be solving problems. And that'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, I mean, I think, I think it's incredible. You're doing that work. Um, I think it's, you know, I've always enjoyed in our conversations, how, how self introspective, curious about yourself and curious about the world you are. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you want to think, you know, a lot of people are focused on the future and if you want to know who you, where you're going in the future, you need to know like who you are and, and where you come from. And, you know, I've one thing, you know, that's along those lines, but very different is I've learned that I'm a terrible project manager. I hate managing people. I'm, t I'm bad at it. They're frustrated. They're miserable. I'm miserable. Like if I can get away with not having to manage people, then I'll be better and they will too. <laughs> so, you know, if you know yourself and you know what you're good at, then you can focus your energy on doing good in your best way, you know? And, and I've been lucky that I've been, you know, with the Beltline and everything else, I've been able to um, put my life and my work in, in what I do best. And, you know, it's really rewarding and, and fun, but I, you know, I wanna continue to do that. I'm not done. Well, let's think about the Beltline just for a second. I know sure. you've, gotten, you've talked about it a lot and we won't spend for, you yeah. know, the majority, but um, you know, the Beltline was a conceptual idea that you imagined. Right. And walk everybody who might not know this story through 
um, a little bit of that conception and then how it came to be because obviously you didn't want a project manager, yeah. right? So <laughs> right. there's yeah, yeah. been countless people involved oh, yeah. in yeah, yeah. then taking this idea and turning it into something that exists, right. um, which is no discredit to the idea because right. nothing exists without right. ideas. And right. that's why you know we, we pay um, these entrepreneurs who own intellectual property so much money mm-hmm. because the ideas are so important. Right. Um, Walk us through the the the, the birth yeah. of the Beltline so in the short version. Sure, sure. Because I want to talk about other stuff. My, yeah, my favorite part of the story, though, starts years before the Beltline itself when, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. I grew up in the suburbs and lived a typical kind of suburban life in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And, well, I was at Georgia Tech in the 90s and, and studying architecture and I did a year abroad in Paris and I, you know, fell in love with cities. I'd never experienced a real city before. And, um, I really just loved it. And I lost 15 pounds in the first month of being there cause I was walking everywhere I went and eating fresh food and the role of the city and the physical form of city and the opportunities that are created by that, that city form became clear to me in a way that they had never really been before. And so when I came back to Atlanta, you know, stuck in traffic driving on 285, I realized that's not what I wanted to do for my life. And so I went back to school, graduate school in urban planning and architecture and ended up, the Beltline became my graduate thesis. The idea being how do we transform this 22 mile loop of old railroads into into something that would create the opportunities to live the kind of life that we want, you know? And it's really that at a high level, that's basically what it is. It's a vision for our future, it's an idea of the way we want to live, and then it's the basically the infrastructure that you have to impl- you know implement to support that that way of life. And never imagined we would actually do it. You know, I just wanted to graduate, uh, which I did. <laughs> uh, but you know, got you know got involved in uh, you know in starting a grassroots movement of people who similarly saw that vision for themselves and wanted that wanted that future for themselves and their lives and their children, their business and lifted the project to life. Literally, the people of the city of Atlanta fell in love with this vision before anybody else, and they made it possible. They got the attention of the elected officials and the regional planners and the transit agency and all that, and so this idea started to become real. And obviously, there's a lot of complexity and soap operas and drama and all of that in between, but you know, fast forward to today where we've spent $500 million on it and we've seen over 5 billion in private investment. And that 5 billion represents people living the kinds of lives that they want, you know, starting businesses, getting jobs, going out, you know, living, you know, inter- you know entertainment and restaurants and in art and culture and, you know, events and meeting new friends and the, taking this railroad, which historically was a barrier between places and you're literally making it into a meeting ground where people come together. And it, you know, we're not done. We haven't built the transit. We, it's not the affordable housing is a challenge. And you know, there's a lot. I mean, we've got a long way to go to actually implement. So we follow through on the promise. The jury's kind of out on whether it's a, we can call it a success. But, um, but it is pretty phenomenal. And you know, even in these early stages and with all the challenges, you know, it's it's definitely it's making that future seem possible in Atlanta in ways that I'm not sure it would have otherwise. What was the very first section of the Beltline? Uh, there was a piece in West End that uh, kind of predated the Beltline as an idea. It was a, ra- a rails to trails con- conversion idea that predated the Beltline for that part of the city. And it because it had some funding associated with it, it ended up being built first. 
the faint the first part of mainline trail though where you're really implementing the actual beltline itself was on the east side from piedmont park down to uh what crock street market past pont city okay so all of that was built at the same time yep that two mile stretch um from past on the east side and you know immediately following the trail being built you know the pont city market started to be implemented and crock street market and all this other stuff and it's it's been really phenomenal where do you consider to be kind of ground zero on the beltline right now like what's what's the center of gravity uh, but you know that's hard to say because it's there's so it's so complex. It's not a simple kind of thing. It's it's really a it's really a a connection between lots of different places, and all of those different places have their own stories. And so, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of attention right now from a real estate development in along the Memorial Drive corridor, for example. I mean, it's just transformed uh, seemingly overnight. Um, the West Side. Um, uh, Howell Mill Junction, Howell Junction area is pretty uh, remarkable. Um, but, you know, the, the, the east side look, you know, 15 years ago was nothing like it is today. And so every, everywhere, everywhere is changing. And even where you don't see, like, tower cranes and stuff, you, you definitely see communities revitalizing and, you know, um, improving. How have you seen – you're on the inside of this conversation about that improvement – do you feel like there are parts of the Beltline that are doing exactly what you imagined relative to socioeconomic uh, integration, racial integration, et cetera? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I think I think the Beltline is working. I mean, the Beltline is not alive, right? It's we we tend to kind of personify it, but it's it's not. It's just a set of projects, right? And so, if we build it. If we build out all the pieces of it, then we will get all the outcomes. But if we don't build all the pieces, then we can't expect all the outcomes. And so, you know, whether that's uh, geographic, uh, you know, whether it's achieving its goals from a, from geographically, you know, in different communities, depends on whether we build those pieces in that in that in those areas. And um, in regard to um, you know the the major part that I'm you know waiting for is the transit piece because it does have a, you know, it's both a greenway trail and a transit line for the full 22 mile loop. The transit is a thing that makes it for everybody. You know, right now I live down near Crog street and I have an office at Pont city market and it's a, you know, I can walk it in you know, 20 minutes, I can ride my bike in like four. It's pretty great. But if it's raining, you know, it's useless, you know, so I, I still have to have a car. I still have to rely on, you know, the, the transit is the thing that makes it work at night in the cold after dark, you know, if you're carrying a heavy load, if it's raining, it goes farther distances. Um, it's the thing, you know, for South and West Atlanta, where I was living when the Beltline came to life, you know, the communities there thought the trail was cute and all, but the, what they really wanted was the transit because it connected them into MARTA which would take them to downtown and the airport and jobs throughout the region. And so, you know, the, the access to jobs and the economic uh, activity that's spurred by transit, the density and all of the other good things that come with that, um, you know, we can't expect those outcomes if we don't implement that infrastructure. What is that going to look like, the uh, transport side, transportation side? It is, uh, it's basically just a, like a light rail or streetcar type tram. If you're familiar with the streetcar that goes through downtown Atlanta, imagine that going through a greenway instead of a downtown street. Hmm. Um, so the technology has evolved where you don't have to have the overhead catenary wires. Um, so it's really just a train. You can walk across the tracks. It's not, it's very, um, 
I know people are uh, nervous about it, but it doesn't really change the experience of the Beltline that much, um, except that every once, every 10 minutes or so, the, a vehicle kind of goes by. But, now, but when the when the East Side Trail opened, you know, we before the East Side Trail opened, we were kind of selling an idea, right? It was just it was just air, and we and there were a lot of people, of course, who were on board. Otherwise, we wouldn't be building it. But the minute the trail opened, anybody who didn't get it, they got it. They're like, oh, I get it now. And then over the next few years, you saw you know Pont City Market blossom and everything else, and you saw what happened. And they're like, oh, I get it now. The absolutely same thing will happen with the transit. I have, I have zero doubt about that. Well, that's the role that uh, people like you play in society, right? You have to yeah. somebody has to imagine it, yeah, and not need it to be built to imagine it, yeah, and then see it built and let everybody else then understand, right? Right. So, without that, then there wouldn't be a role for a project manager. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like you were saying, I mean, you didn't quite say it, but the idea is the easy part, and implementing those ideas are really hard. And so I've, you know, I've played a role in different ways uh, in the implementation over the last 20 years. But, um, but yeah, I don't need to be in charge of it. Well, I mean, implementing ideas is where the rubber meets the road, right? right. I mean, nothing. Um, the idea is important, but the execution is really everything yeah. at the end of the day. And, and but you st we do still have to make sure that you're holding the implementation accountable to the vision because again you can't you can't expect the outcomes that you know we talked about in the beginning if we don't implement what we said we would you know and with 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 of course some room for learning and you know other you know reality you know yeah. but now you're working on some development projects in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Do they interact with the Beltline or is that totally separate? I'm working on the redevelopment of the West End Mall um, and it is connected to the Beltline by a spur. Uh, the, for the transit part of the Beltline to work, it really has to connect to the West End MARTA station, which is not uh, immediately on its route. So it has to kind of jog off course for about a quarter mile. And that's where the mall is. So it's, at, it's not just on the Beltline, it is at the MARTA station across from the Atlanta University Center, which is a collection of four historically black colleges and universities, Morehouse Spelman, Clark Atlanta, Morehouse School of Medicine, and the historic West End community. Very cool. What's going what's the status of that development? What what are you guys working we on? We got a COVID status going on. <laughs> <laughs> you know the reality is it's, it's in COVID quarantine. It's a it's a challenging enough project because it's in an unproven market. And it and again, you know, unsurprisingly we're uh we're implementing a, a project that is hard because it's the right thing to do. You know, tell me a little bit about the projects, like, or tell me about the project, paint me a picture, you know, in words that people can listen to and understand what you're doing. Well, it's an old, it's a small urban mall that was built in 1971. It's basically four city blocks, but it's collected into a giant super block. And we're going to, um, the, the, the ultimate uh, project is to, the mall will be demolished. It'll be four city blocks with a little public space, wide sidewalk, street level retail, um, six to 16 stories, office, hotel, residential. Um, you know, uh, but but because the, it's a, in lots of ways, it's a conventional, you know, mixed use transit oriented real estate development deal. But the the added kind of beautiful, beautiful layer is the, that it's anchoring this historically black community, the, the origin point for Atlanta's legendary black middle class and adjacent to the HBCUs. And so um, it comes with this historic character and quality and also um, ambition. 
and, you know, connected to Atlanta's kind of cultural identity in a ways that um, I think could be a real model for, for, um, for the city. How is the neighborhood responding? Right. So this is a a classic example of um, a white developer who has a fantastic reputation in the city for doing very community minded, um, socially integrated things. Tell me about how you've been received in going into that community and saying, Hey, let's, let's transform this. Well, you think that I'm a white developer, but I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, I'm, my, my business partner is African-American actually grew up in the community, uh, right down the street from the mall. And so he's coming out of the music industry and, uh, family investment technology and media and um so we're an 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 unlikely pair coming into real estate development with big ideas and you know we will have partners to implement and those partners and all the team will certainly reflect um you know that that those those ideas so you feel like you in this case are playing a little bit of an ideas role yeah and you have a partner who's also, you know, ideas and implementation. Yeah, I've learned one thing I've learned, you know, in addition to not wanting to project manage it, I, uh, I stay in my lane, you know, like my, my um, big ideas, but not just, not just like big pie in the sky stuff, but like well thought out, well connected community, you know, talk with the community, understand everything from, you know, health to stormwater management to education and, you know, how those things interrelate to create the lives that we want, right? And so crafting that vision, that narrative, under I, I, when the Beltline came to life, I was living in a, a community adjacent to West End. So I understand that historic legacy. I understand why it happened because it was invested in. The city of Atlanta made investments that, that delivered that black middle class. So we just have to write a new narrative about that that's aspirational, next chapter, or that you know takes into consideration modern life and all these opportunities. So, you know, crafting something out of that and then that's manifest in, in this case, manifest in real estate development. I'm working on another project, my consulting practice where that you're familiar with that where you're taking the same kinds of ideas, economic opportunity, environmental stewardship, stormwater management, you know, public health, all of this stuff. And, but the outcome of that is a 3,500 acre park made out of landfills and truck yards and degraded urban land surrounding the studios right here. Um, but that, but it's the same kind of thinking. So from my perspective, it's the same work, uh, what the outcome is, you know, manifest as a, you know, through real estate development, through, um, through consulting, you know, through, you know, uh, park, you know, planning or whatever, master planning. Um, I have a nonprofit called generators about generating ideas about the future of cities. And so the idea is I'm a big, I'm a big believer in ideas. I've met a lot of other people with ideas. Um, you know, we want, uh, I, I think that we should be listening to them, but nobody's listening. So uh, generators ideas to elevate those voices. So again, same stuff, technology, entertainment, health, brown, brownfield remediation, you know, all the stuff, all the stuff. And I'm not an expert on anything, but I can connect the dots between them and craft a story about not only what our aspirational future might be like, but how that translates into real, mostly place-based uh, either projects or policy. So do you think of yourself more as like an urban philosopher or an urban developer? I have no idea. I, don't, I have a hard time putting words on that. You know, like I don't, I'm just kind of having fun, you know, like I'm working on stuff that uh, it matters to me. 
um, stuff that I'm good at, stuff that I can craft a story around, you know, and, you know, the Beltline taught me a lot, right? So it was just an idea. I never imagined we would build it. But, but what was special about it was watching people fall in love with this idea. They also caught on to this idea and they, and they made it better. And so through a collaborate, you know, organic kind of collaboration, the idea got better and the, and the better it got, the more people got on board, the more constituencies you had in support, the better politics, you know, and all of that. So if you can craft that kind of story that includes everybody and they see themselves in it and they want to be a part of it, then they actively work to make it happen, you know? And so the problem is that that gets out of your hands, you know? And so like, you're not in control. And so its success is up to other people that may or may not implement it or follow through. And so that's just the challenge with my work. Yeah. You, well, you created a, or you and this yeah. nameless, faceless, you right. know, that grows on and on and on in Atlanta that created the Beltline out of this idea that you dreamed up. Then there was $5 billion of capital investment mm -hmm. that did whatever they wanted. Yeah. And in many ways, they've done amazing things. Yes, yeah, right. Right? And I'm sure yeah. there's other places you're like, I can't believe they're doing this. Yeah. Like, that was not, you know, what we meant. But but the point is, $5 billion of capital in the ground, mm -hmm. and then it brings in all this other capital yeah, that it represents so, all the businesses, yeah. and then it creates all this permanent income stream yeah. of all the businesses and all the people who live along the belt line, yeah. that then that vortex of money yeah. surrounding that, I don't know, is it 20 feet across? I mean, how many yeah. feet of concrete across? Yeah. 18, yeah. 18 feet, 18 feet 14, across, sorry, 14, 14 feet across of concrete yeah. that goes miles and miles and miles. That concrete is now a vortex of money. I mean, it's crazy because it's at the end of the day, it's, we're just talking about a slab of concrete, you know, like, but it's, but what it does and the reason why Pont City Market and the new office building across the way from it, 725 Ponce, that's brand new and attracted BlackRock and all these other things. The reason those buildings are getting the highest office rents of anywhere in the city, including Buckhead is because that slab of concrete provides a kind of the way of life that people want. And those are the people that those companies want to hire. It's as simple as that. And so, you know, that back down here with the South river forest, the idea is if you take all this forgotten degraded land and you make it into something aspirational, something good for people's lives, which they want, you know, they may not know that they want it, but once they see it, they will want it. It's the last chance for Metro Atlanta to have a park that large inside 285. This is it. And when I was during one of my, my urban exploration uh, phase of the pandemic, <laughs> to go back to that, was just trespassing on all this private land down here that's beautiful forest in a way, uh, but, you know, would have to be assembled. So it's just an idea. But you go out there and there's other people out there like they, they want, you know, it's so if you can if you can connect that to, you know, obviously Black Hall's big part of that vision and the and the economic story and the cultural story that black hall offers this part of the region is incredible um, and also part of that story so pu pull all of that together in a shared kind of vision where you're not you know you're you're being aspirational you're being positive you're growing but also you're including the communities around you and, and bringing them up lifting them with with that change so that they also get the benefit I mean, that's, that's the dream, right? And I think that's what everybody kind of wants, you know, they just, they don't always get it because there's so many, um, you know, they just don't competing. <laughs> well, there's a lot of competing forces in the world. Right, 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 right. Now you're, you're working on something at Stone Mountain as well. Is that right? Yeah. What, right. Tell me about, I don't know anything about that one. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, um, over the summer, you know, following, um, 
Well, actually, predates that. Back after Charlottesville, uh, whenever that was, a couple years ago, you know, the the issue of, you know, if if you don't familiar with Stone Mountain, it's a massive geological aberration. It's the largest piece of exposed granite in the world and has a date, you know, history of human habitation to prehistory. I mean, it's an incredible natural geological kind of wonder. Uh, But it has a bunch of Confederates uh, carved on the side of it and it's been transformed into what they call a Confederate memorial. And um, anyway, it's the largest Confederate memorial in the country and it's giantly, it's the largest bas-relief sculpture in the world. So it's not something you just yank down overnight. And so you see the Confederate sculpture, you know, carving, sorry, statues coming down everywhere. And and periodically this question of what to do with it comes up. And what's the history of when, because that was carved into the rock. Carved in the rock. Well, that's the, that's the ugly part. So that's the part where you really see why something has to be done with it. So it, it started in 1915 when the modern Ku Klux Klan founded itself at the mountain, mountain by burning a cross on the top of the mountain. And the United Daughters of the Confederacy then took a lease on the north face of the mountain, which is the steep part, and commissioned the carving of you know what at the time was a much more elaborate carving that included you know flying KKK horsemen and all this stuff. It was wild. But they ran out of money, and it would, they only finished Robert E. Lee's head, and it sat on the side of the mountain for 30 years. And so imagine we're way past the war. We're way past into a whole different time in the country's history in the 1950s when the state legislator, the, state, the governor, picked up the project again and decided that now's a great time to make this into a Confederate memorial. Now imagine what's happening just a few miles away in downtown Atlanta. The, as Atlanta emerges as a cradle of the civil rights movement, the state decides to, um, following Brown versus Board of Education, following the uh, adding the battle, Confederate battle emblem on the state flag. Well, we'll, let's hold for one second. Sorry about this. Following the um, following Brown versus Board of Education, following the addition of the battle flag to the state flag uh, in the 50s, uh, they decide to um, make this Confederate memorial. And literally in 1963, when Dr. King in his High Have a Dream speech in Washington Mall said, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain in Georgia, the state legislature approved the funding to finish the carving. And so they funded it, was built through following the Voting Rights Act of the assassination of Dr. King. The carving wasn't finished until uh, 1972. And so, you know, you can't look at that and think, oh yeah, this is a memorial to the Confederacy. It has nothing to do with the Confederacy. The symbols of the Confederacy have been weaponized uh, by white supremacists. And you read those statements of the governor at the time is very clearly carved as a intimidation and oppression tactic to black people of Georgia. There's no, there's no getting around that history. And so if that's true, then something needs to happen with it. Anyway, back to Charlottesville, this had come up and my friend and I were talking like, what would you do? That's cause right now everybody's like, just blast it off the side of the mountain or keep it exactly like it is. There's no middle ground, right? And so he was like, well, you know, they clean it all the time. And if you just stopped cleaning it, then it would start to grow with like moss and lichen and trees would start to grow out of it. And that's true. When you walk up the mountain, any crack in the mountain has a pine tree growing out of it. And so that when, if, you, if they didn't clean it, all the nooks and crannies of the sculpture would start to grow. And so we're like, well, that's a great idea. And we say you could do the same thing to this lawn because right now there's this giant memorial lawn that, that 
puts it in this very triumphant position. So you just let the lawn grow back into a forest. And so the sculpture is still there. And, you know, the, the Civil War is part of our history, the Lost Cause propaganda campaign, the, all the terrible things that have happened ever since then, including the carving itself in the 1950s. All that's part of who we are, but it fades into the past. It's no longer our aspirational focus. And let's rethink the park as a place of natural beauty, the restorative power of nature, to um, for healing and reconciliation and all that. That's a beautiful, aspirational, positive outcome. And so, anyway, that I, I wrote an op-ed that ran in the Guardian back in June, following the murder of um, Ahmed Aubrey and you know um, everybody else. And so, uh, and it got picked up, and I got introduced to some people who were simultaneously organizing this sort of ragtag group of people who uh, wanted to do something. And so we met over Zoom, and uh, we kind of self-organized. You know, again, I I play my role. Like I can do the placemaking, physical design piece of what do you do with this thing, but obviously it takes a lot more than that. It takes management, like we said. It takes organizing. It takes um, you know, reaching out to the companies that do work with the park and, you know, uh, like Marriott. And uh, it takes um, uh, the legal team to look at because the, the sculpture itself is protected and they hide behind the law, but the law doesn't really protect the, the flags and the, na- the street names after, you know, the Confederate generals and all that. All that could change right now, but they hide behind the law. But the only thing the law actually protects is the carving itself, which is fine will change public sentiment and then that law will change overnight and so anyway it's been fun to be a part of we we presented uh we met with the board that that manages a mountain on the state behalf the stone mountain memorial association works for the state there's their agency of the state and um we met with them and you know we're being really reasonable because we're not saying you have to blast it off all we're saying is we should do this stuff because it's hurtful it's not only hurtful to people, it's hurtful to the people. Nobody come, people don't come to the park because of it. You know, events aren't held at the park because of it. So it's hurting the economics of the park. We're being really reasonable and they, you know, they can't help but agree that it's a good idea. They, they won't say that, <laughs> but, um, and then, you know, we continued the other day we had a, um, prayer vigil on Tuesday afternoon, randomly in the middle of the day for, uh, for it. And, you know, had a bunch of different faith leaders come out for it and, you know, who knows? It, it feels like something is going to happen because it's because it's a good idea, and because the timing is right. You know, the um, the national narrative around this is just so powerful that if you have a good idea, and you, and 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 the people who are trying to defend it can no longer defend it because they're because it's indefensible, then something is going to happen. So I feel pretty good that something substantive is going to happen. It's, we, the, or, the group is called the Stone Mountain Action Coalition. You should check it out, stonemountainaction.org. When you describe these things, it sounds like you are a moral philosopher, and I mean that in the, <laughs> in the um, more classical sense of just you care about the soulful consequences of our collective actions. Do you see this as a spiritual enterprise? You were talking about uh, people gathering for a prayer meeting yeah you know um i definitely um have some kind of spiritual spirituality i'm not sure i would name it quite that i mean that's cer- there's certainly um I, it is a there's a moral piece to it i'm not really sure to be honest with you it's a 
part of my soul searching and all this is to kind of figure out not just is to figure out how I, I fit in and why I ended up this way. It took me a while to realize that I see the world differently than other people. <laughs> and, uh, and so now I kind of feel a bit of an account, a bit of accountability to that because I, I love, I love the way that I see the world and I love the projects that I'm able to work on. And so I feel like if, if other people don't see it, then I have a role in trying to help them to see it in case they're interested. You know, I'm not trying to force my ideas on anybody, you know, but if, but if other people like them, um, enough to see some be something better than, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely up for trying to make them real. I mean, if that's not spiritual, I'm not sure what is. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, what, yeah. what is it, what is it that is not spiritual about trying to cast a vision for a better life? Yeah. Now the question is, why do you think that's important? A better life? Um, trying to lead others to a better life. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't feel like it's a leadership thing exactly, I guess. I'm not really sure how to claim, say that. I, I have taken a kind of a different turn. I have a lot of, um, uh, I've maybe put a bit of pressure on myself about living my best life. You know, I've, life is short. I've been, I've lost a lot of pe several people in my life and, you know, um, I just don't take it for granted. And, you know, when I was seven, I'm a twin. And when I, w when we were seven, our older brother died of leukemia. And so he had his whole life that he didn't get to live, you know, and his death changed our f family dynamics, you know, substantively in ways that I, uh, am not yet quite reconciled. Um, later we were very close to our extended family and my cousin Hank, who was our same age, um, he died in a accident in Ireland and, and he was an incredibly talented um, musician. And we used to talk about all the things that we were going to accomplish in our lives. And so he didn't get to do that. And I'm not trying to live his life for him, but he was the kind of person who always was living his best life. And I just feel like I want to do that. And, you know, that was, of course, before the Beltline and all this. So now the Beltline is real and it's open doors for me. And I'm and I love it. And I just want to keep going. And, you know, if if people like what I have to say, what the kinds of ideas that I have and the and the and the world that I'm imagining and working on, then then that's great. And not everything. Not everything is not everybody. Everybody doesn't like everything I like. So, you know, it's not all going so great but i mean it is it's it's sufficient and i'm and i'm happy about it it's fun how did your older brother's death affect you and your twin brother differently um you know well we're, we're twins but we're fraternal we're very different and um you know so we just responded very differently um and you know i don't want to speak um for him we're 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 close we're brothers you know but um, we are uh, different in, you know, terms of our interests and skill sets. And, you know, we just, I don't know. It's hard to, uh, are there other siblings or was it just your older brother and then the twins that the three of us, the yeah. three of us. Yeah. And so then it was just the two of you. Yep. And then where's he live? He lives, uh, he, uh, is my father uh, has a construction company. Um, and he works with my dad and, you know, we'll take over that company. And so he lives there out in powder Springs and with the rock 
Huh? With the Rock, you know, the Rock bought a big farm out in Palestine. Oh no, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Maybe they're they're on the Silver Comet, so I don't know if he's on the Silver Comet or not. But anyway, um, his wife uh, lives in uh, South Carolina, so in from a previous marriage, and so um, and two little girls. So he has a bit of a commute. Uh, so he, you know, but um, you know, he, I don't know. That's. Well, let's say just for the you know the, the sake of my imagination that this is a spiritual argument, yeah. right? And I say to you, cast me a spiritual vision and like the transformation that happens over the next ten years in Atlanta. What are some of the things you'd love to see? Well, actually, um, I didn't. When you started that question, I didn't think I would have anything, but I but I do. <laughs> I think you know with with all this going on right now in the world, and 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 I guess what I mean is. Um, it's certainly happening across the world, but I mean, in this country in terms of our kind of late, late to the game reckoning with a lot of our history, um, and realities. Um, I, I think that if we survive it, um, and I think that we will, <laughs> assuming we survive it, I think that we have over the last eight months or whatever it's been gone through something together that, um, has really changed us and i think for the better uh, i'm optimistic about that I, I don't quite know what that looks like yet but i do think that a lot of people who um including myself as we started out you know my you know kind of search back into my own family history um i think a lot of people have seen some realities that they weren't seeing before uh, regarding especially regarding uh, racial justice um, and I think that we will be better for it and I think it's been hard and painful for a lot of people but I think uh, I'm, I'm really optimistic that we um, that 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 whatever it is that has allowed you know what's happening to happen um, is kind of like a f last gasp of um, to that to the people who would who would continue to fight for that that very different and un, unjust vision for this country. And so I'm actually really optimistic that as we pull ourselves out of it and it's going to be a lot of work that the that we will make changes that will make make life better. What are some of those changes? Well, you know, like I I think, you know, large like I said, I think largely around racial justice and so like I um, I think that white people one of our challenges is that we don't know how to talk about these issues you know we know how uh, privilege works we know how the tools work we know it instinctively and you saw that story of the woman in Central Park with the dog and the bird watcher and all that she knew exactly what she was doing she she weaponized her uh, telephone and her voice to against that black man in ways that she may not have done it consciously, but she she knew exactly what she was doing. And so we know how it works, but we don't know how to talk about it. We're uncomfortable talking about it because it's unseemly, you know. So I think we are learning. A lot of us are learning how to talk about that in ways that will translate into change. The second thing is I think that we um, we have we know that that good intentions are not good enough. You know, there's a lot of people with good intentions, but the problem with these sort of structural problems is that it's, it's not about you and me and what we think, you know, it's about, it's about it. Can we do it? 
and so if the structure is structured against uh, people who are not white, then the best intentions of white people aren't good enough because it, it doesn't allow change, you know? So you have to actually do the hard work to change the structures. And so I think, personally, I think there's a, a fair amount of attention to that. And if, assuming against, assuming we survive, then you start to see changes done sort of structurally to that. The third part is, um, is about reparations and the fact that that is even a topic that comes up without everybody just falling out of their chairs anymore. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's a super popular idea right now. <laughs> But I do think that it is uh, on the table in a, in a way that it hasn't been before. And I think that that is a really uh, productive step forward because I think that you know, if we change all the structures to be more inclusive, but you still don't have the resources to, to, imp, you know, to work on your dream you know, or your vision or send your kids to college, then you still don't get to enjoy the benefits of that change. And so it's important to... I'm not, you know, I don't know what that really means or how, how that would actually be uh, implemented, but it's definitely something we should be talking about. And the, and the last thing um, is, um, is about that narrative back to the beginning of our conversation. I think that um, we need, we've been, we've been um, resting on our, I don't know what the expression is, but it's like we've, we've been following along this sort of story about who we are for so long. Um, and we need a different story. We need something better, you know, that, that includes everybody. You, you mean know? as Americans? Americans. And I, I think especially uh, white Americans, it's hard for, I think it's hard for people to see, you know, if you acknowledge our past and the, and the, you know, atrocities that are part of our history, then it's hard to, you don't want to be always blamed for things and you don't want to always see that history, that your ancestry in such a negative light. You want to acknowledge that they were complex humans like everybody else and that they were, um, and that the world is complicated and that we are also now complicit in all of these problems, right? So you just want to kind of contextualize that story in a way that, um, that, that, is still aspirational so that we're motivated to do the work and get and move forward and you know celebrate life again you know maybe one day we can be happy again but but um but i think uh yeah so i i think that's that's not super clear i guess but i think that i mean that's kind that, that narrative um, that idea, I think, is something that I am really interested in and, and working on. And, that, and I think that's kind of what Stone Mountain is about. I mean, I don't, I'm not a, you know, psychologist. I, I'm not psychoanalyzing myself. I, I don't know. But I'm assuming that I'm interested in that project, especially because uh, I think it will help us move toward that, whatever that, whatever that idea is, whatever that narrative is. Psychologically, certainly, I think it's healthier <laughs> to allow things to grow over mm -hmm. rather yeah. than try to destroy. Yeah, right. Because you can't destroy the past. It there's just there's an elegance to it, you know. Mm -hmm. I think I think blasting it off the side of the mountain would feel good for a minute, but it's more that's more like revenge than it is about healing, you know. And so I like I personally like that idea uh, a lot. Well, lichen and moss and pine trees is. Mm -hmm. Um, not necessarily revenge, but it's just letting go. Yeah, it's an artful kind of neglect. It's amazing when, if you if you see the sculpture. Sculptures like that, they're called bas relief sculptures. The the reason the way they work is through shade, shadow, and contrast. It relies on that. You have to have shadow and contrast to be able to see it. 
And so if you destroy that contrast with lichen and moss and you destroy the shadow with kind of messiness and flowers and trees and stuff, then you, it really disappears fast. It won't, it won't take long to disappear. I actually went after the op-ed in the guardian. I, um, I got an email from a guy. He says he's an ecologist. He says, you want to make that vegetation grow, spray it with cow manure. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, it would be appropriate. And it would, it would be instantly covered with vegetation. Now that might feel a little too symbolic in the other way. And you know, you you don't, you don't want to incite. Um, well, that's true. And I, and I don't, and, and I think it's important to not be naive about the resistance that there will be to any change, you know? Um, but the, but the reality is, uh, that, that resistance is there at the park already. The, the symbols of the Confederacy attract uh, violence and hate. And, you know, just a, about a month ago, they shut down the park because there was going to be a big demonstration. And the people just went into Stone, the city of Stone Mountain and they wreaked havoc on downtown streets. And so that violence is here and we have to address it, you know. So just from a pragmatic standpoint at the park, something needs to be done. Now, you've gotten to work at the innermost regions of uh, Atlanta and the state of Georgia and seen the inner workings. How do you think that Atlanta, as an incredibly integrated city, can serve as a model for a lot of growth in this country? And where do you see the places where even Atlanta, that's probably far more progressed in racial integration than any other city in America, uh, the places where Atlanta can continue to grow? Sure. And actually, when you asked the spiritual question earlier, I meant to kind of go in this direction. But, um, you know, if you, I worked on a project called the Atlanta City Design a few years ago with the planning commissioner for the city of Atlanta. So only the city, which is a tenth of the regional population. But we're looking at an aspirational vision for the future of the city. And, and again, in order to know where you want to go, you got to know who you are. And in digging around, you know, um, in Atlanta's kind of well-known history what's less kind of articulated a lot is that um what separated atlanta from other cities in the south uh, for national and international investment what made it palatable for investment was um the civil rights movement you know is that's the thing that made it different that's the thing that made it okay to invest in this region that had so many problems with racial injustice and everything else and, and so if you, if you imagine that the, if you see that the regional prosperity stands on the shoulders of the civil rights movement, then you see that we've done, we've accomplished a lot by doing the right thing, right? And so I think that if we uh, double down on that history, if we follow through with those commitments to um, justice, to equity, uh, to inclusion, and to diversity, then we have something, uh, we will, create an, an, another model for the for our future city whatever we are becoming you know and i think that atlanta is uniquely um suited to that because you know the civil rights movement didn't happen here for for no reason there were reasons it happened here there's something in the dna of this place that um, makes things possible we also have an incredibly diverse population and you know in, in a place like silicon valley i think the statistic is like one in every 50 tech workers, people who work in technology are African-American. I mean, they have other diversity, but if you're talking about African-American, one in 50, that same uh, number in Atlanta is one in four. 
So if you're looking to diversify your workforce, if you're looking to address uh, racial justice and inclusion through your company, where they invest, where they locate, all of that kind of stuff, then Atlanta is a great place to come because we have a natural talent pool of people who are who who can provide that you know resource, but also bring a perspective to the table that frankly is what a lot of the country and a lot of the world is looking for. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity in that. Another way kind of answer to the question regarding the sort of bigger uh, statewide kind of issues is the same is true for the South generally, right? So this the Atlanta is often called the capital of the South, but it's the that, that diversity, that sense of opportunity, that uh, cultural contribution of, of our diverse population um, is true for a lot of places in the South. And so if you start to draw the lines between the urban, you know, city parts and the rural and agricultural parts of the region, then, then you, then you tell a bigger kind of more inclusive story. You're ta- you're breaking down the rural urban kind of divides. You're, you're opening up, you know, new connections and breaking, you know, the social and political polarization that we have. So I think that there's a, there's a way that the South and through Atlanta can lead that conversation forward in a way that's, um, that would be really great for, uh, for the country as a whole. What are some of the ways you think Atlanta can improve in this regard? Well, you know, I think that we have to follow through on, I mean, I think we've rested on our laurels a lot since the civil rights movement. You know, we, we've, we have, uh, black elected leadership for a long time. Now we have, um, you know, a lot of, uh, black leadership in, you know, the, the corporate world and the nonprofit world. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of diversity at multiple levels um, that has not necessarily translated into the policy changes that are needed to protect the people who are still at the bottom of the economic spectrum. And so we have massive challenges for uh, income inequality, for example, at the top of the, at the top of the um, list in the country. And when you look at an issue like gentrification, the com- the combined combined issue of uh, gentrification and the suburbanization of poverty, then you start to see um, how that kind of inequities translates to not just be an urban downtown kind of problem, but a but a regional and statewide issue that combines with our lack of investment in you know transportation and other things to re- create real real challenges um, ahead of us. It's not too hard to paint a dystopian picture of. Um, the metropolitan region. Um, I don't, I don't think that will go that way, but it's certainly, um, not yet. Uh, uh, we haven't, it's, 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 it's a possibility. So you think that Atlanta itself could lead the way in trying to figure out how to care for the least, right? Care for the ones who have the least, right? The least among us. You will. We we could, but we have to do it. I mean, you know, we we have Dr. King's dream. We have it all spelled out. And when you and the, you know, there's a I'm, I say this all the time. I'm like, I'm not an expert on housing. Like, but we have them. There's a lot of them. You know, we should listen to them. In most of these issues, whether you're talking about housing affordability or transit implementation or cost of living or economic opportunity or job creation and all that stuff, wealth building, all of that, it's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we're not doing it. And so that's more of a political equation. And I don't mean like city hall kind of politics. I mean, 
we all, the rest of us, sit out here in our homes living in our, our lives, we have to speak up and we have to vote for things and we have to support that kind of shared vision, you know? And that happens in the voting booth, that happens when we hire somebody to, you know, for some service or, um, you know, we can be uh, intentional about how we do that. And so like back in back at the project in West End, you know, if you're intentional about who you hire to as your architects, your engineers, your um, the housekeeping companies, you know, that will work in the hotels and what stores are opening in the uh, shop, you know, the retail spaces, what companies lease buildings, what companies manage the leasing of those office buildings, you know, what companies, um, you know, just if you're thoughtful about that, what we're really talking about is just intentionality and all the decisions that we make about our lives, you know, Mm -hmm. what are the downstream implications for um, not uh, holding on to that stormwater, you know, if it's flooding out downstream communities, if those communities are low income communities of color, you know, how, or if we just made a bunch of investments downstream, how do we make sure that we're protecting them? So it's just about making sure and you know cities are complex right and so it's just about making sure that we're thinking through all the that complexity as we make decisions about our own path forward because you know anybody who tells you that they know what the future looks like um you know they're wrong you know because we don't know and the question is and and, in the same way that my grandparents didn't know you know what was gonna what the what the you know urban sprawl and all that would be like today you know, we don't know where we're going, but we can make the best decisions we can along the way. We can make sure that uh, we, uh, you know, that the people who are most impacted by change get to be part of the decision-making process, that they benefit from it, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. One of the areas where I struggle in trying to think through um, how cultural transformation and political change fit together is that you know, fundamentally, I want my politicians to be very, very lazy. And the reason is, is that I believe that part of the genius of America mm-hmm. is just fundamental freedom. Yeah. So I want to elect politicians who at the top of their list is to protect my freedom. Yeah. Now, I want a society that then educates my choice in that freedom, mm-hmm. right? That teaches me how to be a good human being, that challenges me to make better decisions for my own soul, my own spirituality, my own goodness, right. and for the goodness of my neighbor and, the, and all those in my society. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear you say, you know, um, our vote is important, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, our vote's really important. And then I get scared because I don't want us to all depend on the government. Right to figure out how to make us good people. Yeah. I really want the government to give us the freedom to be as bad as we want and as good as we want. And hopefully we all choose to be good. And that's what it means to be an American It's yeah. not right. that we have a government that's so good and right. forces us into goodness. Right. But then instead we have this beautiful ecosystem that the right. government's only job is to protect the freedom. Yeah. And that it's our job as human beings, yeah. as American human beings to then choose what's right and good yeah. and figure that out. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the, the place of focus for me on that is uh, what you said, government's role to protect that freedom. Because that, the, what that means is, you know, governance, right? And so that's, that's, the, that's the rules and laws and things that frame, that create the space for us to live the lives that we want. And right now, um, still, after all these years, 
those rules and laws that frame are written in ways that benefit some people more than other people. And all we're talking about, when I say vote for people, I, I really just mean vote to fix, make those fixes so that that frame is, is truly equitable so that lives up to America's promise that all men are created equal and all that stuff. And I think that, I don't think it's that hard to agree on that that's the goal. And when you start, you know, when you start pointing at things that happen that end up in with inequities and unequal society, then then those are the things that we should be sort of focusing on. And we'll disagree about what those things are, right? So, you know, it's not to say that everything has to be, we have to get everything right, because right is a question, right? Or there's a there's a range of what is correct in that story. There's and, a and range, change, and, and the range in our ability to actually discern what is right, correct. Yeah, there might also, actually be a correct. But. And, right, and it'll, but it also change over time. So, mm. you know, it's an evolving kind of thing. And I, I really just mean, I'm not, I'm not I, I kind of agree with you. I think that if, if, we, if, we, ha, if we created an, a, a frame, with that legal framework or whatever you want to call it, policy framework, if it did result in true kind of equality, then imagine the beautiful, wonderful things that people could do, you know, or they could just disappear and, and be terrible people too, I guess, if they wanted to. You know? Which, which uh, with, within some limit is yeah, fine, right? right? Yeah. I mean, none of us... If you're not hurting anybody else, then do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah live in it. whatever level of hell you'd like. I mean, Dante <laughs> defined them all. But that, you know, don't drag the whole society there, right? right? We right. have to have boundaries around that. Right. But apart from that, I don't, you know, I, I, I want to see more people do what you're doing at Stone Mountain, where you yeah. say, I want to see this changed. Yeah. What are the things I can proactively do to get it changed yeah. that don't require me to, like, elect all new officials? Right. I just need to go make good yeah. arguments that yeah. are good for society. Well, to your, and to that point, actually, that's exa- I think the Stone Mountain is a great example because historically, um, the path of least resistance for government regarding Stone Mountain is to leave it the way that it is. And this group is putting pressure on that to say so that the, their path of least resistance is going to be to do something because um, because it's not right, you know, and it needs to change. But there has to be political pressure for it to change and to be corrected. And I think that if it is corrected in a beautiful way, then then they'll do it and everything else will just sort of fall back into balance, you know. And so I don't think it has to be. We don't need it. You're right. We don't need another government agency to like oversee this. Like the tools are already there. It's just about making, you know, getting them to do, you know, what, what we now think is, you know, well, I don't want to say what we now think is their job, but like it is their job. But I mean, you know, to do, to create a different outcome. Well, we're out of time. This has been fun. It has been fun. You have a, uh, a wonderfully creative and active mind. I appreciate you sharing it with us today. Great to be here. Um, thanks for the time and look forward to more conversation in the future. Excellent. I'm Ryan Millsap and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios Podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Millsap.